This is Terry Crosby. Andy Steiger. Steve Kim. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Welcome back, listeners, for another week. We are glad to be with you again. It's good to be here, Terry. Yes, the boys brought, are back in town. Notice that you brought a special guest. I did. We did. <laughs> we have a young gentleman sitting beside us here, a budding apologist. Yeah, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Elijah Nickel. I'm in grade nine. Terry's a family friend of ours, so I came along to see what he does. Yes, he's with us for the day. So today is bring your child to work with you day. Correct. Except in this case. Yeah, in this case, it's bring, <laughs> bring your friend's, friend's child, child to work, to work today. today. Because <laughs> uh, Nickel's dad, he works at MEI, and Elijah actually goes to MEI. So, you know, he just really didn't want to go. And by MEI, we mean that <laughs> high school down the street from right. the church, Mennonite Educational Institute, in case our listeners are not aware what that is. Which they probably aren't. Nope. Terry, you unthoughtful <laughs> jerk. Uh, Elijah, tell us uh, what your, what's your favorite class? I really enjoy band. I play trombone. Mm. I have heard, actually, you play before. It seems to run in the family. Uh, your mom is a violin player, I believe. Yes. Right? Yeah, she's excellent. I've heard you play. You are fantastic. Is it true that you like apologetics? Now realize you could get kicked out of the show at this point. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> he loves apologetics. All right, you, you can it, stay. You heard it here. You can stay. Have you ever had a class with your dad? Yes, I took art from him in grade seven. What was that like? Uh, interesting. I got really good marks. <laughs> you know this is going out. Yeah. <laughs> to a lot of years. Right? Yeah. That's great. That's great. Hey, we're glad that you're uh, here on the show. And feel free to contribute at any time. I'm sure it'll be more thoughtful than Terry. And uh, <laughs> I said he that might, right. He might take my position. <laughs> I said that right as Terry took a sip. I was really hoping that, that he might spit that out. But no, he's just gotten used to it at this point. Uh, but yeah, feel free to, to jump in at any time. Steve Kim is with us fresh from the prairies. Tell us where were you, Steve, and a little bit of the speaking engagement you just came back from. Yeah, technically I'm still in the prairies because I live in the Edmonton area, but uh, uh, it's not very often that I get to fly out to Manitoba. This is actually... Which is the deep prairies. Do I got to call it the deep prairies? (laughs) But yeah, I flew out to landmark Manitoba. Truthfully, I didn't even know the place existed until I got contacted by Prairie Rose Evangelical Mennonite Church. They were doing this missions conference over the weekend, and they requested that I come and speak to them. And so I spoke four times on various issues. How do I talk to my neighbors? You know, what is apologetics for? Does God exist? That sort of thing. And I think we should probably just mention quickly, if anybody's listening, this is something that we do. Terry, Steve, and myself constantly are heading out, speaking at different engagements across Canada. Uh, This is something that we love to do. 
Now, this was a part of a missions uh, conference, Steve? Mm-hmm. So every year, as I understand, this church does a, a missions conference there. It's a Mennonite church. So for me, it felt a little bit like homecoming because, you know, I'm from Abbotsford where it, there are lots of Mennonites. And so there, you know, every other name is Friesen and there are a lot <laughs> of Plet in that church. And I was billeted by the Dirksen family there, Don and Val, wonderful, wonderful people. I got to meet two of their children, Brooklyn and Sonia. It turns out their eldest daughter, Shania, who works at Miller College of the Bible in Saskatchewan, she's actually a regular listener of the show. And she was rather upset that she couldn't be there for the conference where I would be speaking. So shout out to you, Shania, if you're listening to this. If you talk to Terry nicely, he might uh, let you come to the conference as an exhibitor. Because I think we've had Miller (laughs) College of the Bible before. I think it was last year. And so, yeah, you have a wonderful family. Uh, Hopefully, yeah, our paths will cross in the future. Steve, tell me the truth here. Is being attacked by a polar bear a very real possibility in Manitoba? (laughs) Maybe in Churchill, (laughs) Manitoba, but not quite in Landmark, Manitoba. That's south of Winnipeg, right? Down south. Yeah, down south. Oh, that's actually south of Winnipeg. Yeah. All right. The southeast. Yeah, about half an hour from the edge of the city. Yeah, Terry does bear scars from polar bears (laughs) his time up north. (laughs) You know, you try to pet one, it doesn't go well. (laughs) You actually met a family friend of ours when you were there? Yeah, I did. Small world. Yeah, Deidre Plett. They mentioned the Crosbys from Spruce Grove, and I was like, how many Crosbys from Spruce Grove (laughs) could we possibly know? That that just starts to get ridiculous, Terry, because I just spoke at a conference two weeks ago. Yeah. And the lead pastor of that church <laughs> knew Terry as well. Every, it's everybody at some point yes. has a connection that with Terry was wild. in Canada. That it, was really wild. It is truly wild. Somebody That's, I ran into when I was like 18 years old at a camp that I was working at. And yeah, at that, Pastor Rob, yeah. Uh, Hey, before we transition uh, into our topic, which I'm really looking forward to discussing, just want to remind our listeners that the Apologize Canada Conference uh, registration is now live. Uh, We would love to have you out and want to encourage you to pick up your tickets. You have the month of November to pick up the early bird uh, rate. Again, we'd love to have you out. Uh, I'm always impressed by the numbers that we have attending uh, for the last, I think, almost every year, actually, that we've run this conference. It's sold out. Uh, And... We've been amazed at already, within the first two days, we sold 67 tickets to the conference. So this is the 10th year. The 10th year, and it's selling quick. We'd love to have you out. Yeah. There is a buzz already, isn't there? There is. A lot of people love in the topic we're talking about. We're dealing with the subject of Back to the Future. And so we're looking at the question of, you know, we've done 10 years of ministry here in Canada, and we're asking the question, what does the next 10 years uh, look like? You know, what, what are some of the major topics that we should be thinking about? And so in preparation for that, I'm actually flying out to San Diego pretty quick here to meet with Lee Strobel. He and I are doing a, a video interview kind of discussing, okay, what, what are things looking like from his perspective in the United States and our perspective from Canada? And then... As we've organized this conference, we are touching on what we believe are the major issues that people should be thinking about and prepared to address in the next 10 years. So we'd love to have you out. It's exciting, and it's coming fast. In the next uh, four months, we'll have our conference. All right, let's get into the topic today. We are going to talk about cancel culture. 
this has been in the news uh, just recently with a number of high-profile people. Uh, Barack Obama was talking about it. Yeah. And it's something that hit close to home. It hit close to home, yeah. Yeah, for sure. But in the past, it has been called called out culture as well. So there's an interplay between those two different words. Yeah. And uh, we, uh, we have been seeing it in the uh, news articles lately. So we thought we'd talk about it. So this is basically a public denouncement of somebody's views, whether they're racist, homophobic, transphobic, those kind of things. And it doesn't have to be... A lot of the examples lately have been just from people that have posted a tweet like years and years ago. Right. And they're being called out for that one tweet. That's the called out culture, which we've been in for for a while now. Yeah. So this uh, cancel culture is really expedited these days through social media. So would you say then the cancel culture came from the called out culture? Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, from what I've read... Uh, called out culture was more in person. So you would go up to a person and have a discussion with them. This canceled culture is really being flamed by social media. There is just a logical connection there, isn't there? If you, um, once you call out somebody for being intolerant or homophobic or something like that, the next logical step would be to deplatform that person. And that's basically what cancel culture is. It's just a more public form of the call out culture where you basically uh, refuse to give somebody that you disagree with any kind of platform, any kind of a voice in the public square. And, and let's just talk about that. What are some of the ways that we're seeing that take place? Well, just a little while ago in Toronto, there was this feminist who rented a space at Toronto Public Library to hold this seminar. I forget her name, Megan, what was it? Megan Murphy. Okay, yeah, yeah. Megan uh, Megan Murphy. And so she's a feminist and she basically wanted to have this seminar where she was critiquing the transgenderism movement and how that actually is a threat to feminism. But then... The LGBTQ community rallied and put pressure on the public library, basically. Hundreds gathered outside the library to protest this one seminar. And they were jeering at the people who attended seminar as they were filing out of the library, so on and so forth. And now, most recently, we hear about Lindsay Shepard coming to Simon Fraser University, her event being canceled because of the, the pressure from... And Megan Murphy was in that uh, talk as well, and that was supposed to happen last Friday, mm-hmm. uh, and that got canceled, moved to a different venue. Now, just to be clear, <clears throat> SFU canceled it. Now, from what I understand, they wanted to say that they were canceling it for safety concerns, and that very well uh, may have been the case. I know that when they went and found a new venue that they weren't publicizing that. They decided that they wouldn't publicize the location of the event until two hours before, and they would only send it out to those who had registered. What I think is interesting there, well, there's actually a couple things that are interesting there. One is, you're absolutely right, one of the ways that a cancel culture is working is by putting pressure on the venue so that the venue won't host the event. Mm. And there's different ways that the cancel culture works. Works, For example, you can put pressure on that venue, and, and we know that this happened with me, uh, having a venue canceled where I was to speak at a local high school here in Abbotsford, and that ended up getting 
canceled and and pressure was put on the school where they were threatened with lawsuits. Okay, if this individual comes and speaks, okay, we're going to we're going to sue you. So that's one way that the pressure gets put on. Another way that pressure is being put on uh, that I'm seeing is with the threat of violence. Okay, if this event takes place, you know, there's going to be this threat of violence, you know, and then the host has to think, okay, do I want to have to deal with that? And I know we've even dealt with this with churches where churches are like, well, do we want to put on an event where we're going to have protesters? And then we got to think through how we're going to deal with with all of that. And do we actually want to be in the spotlight on this particular mm-hmm. topic? Those are all questions, you know, that these hosts are, are having to wrestle through. Now, there's a, another way that I'm seeing cancel culture work that I think is important to point out. And that is by attending an event, but then being so disruptive in the event that the event can't go on. Yeah, I remember there was a time when uh, this happened in Toronto where some speakers came to the university and they were speaking on feminism and they were actually challenging sort of the conventional wisdom about feminism and how, you know, men are often oppressed and that sort of thing. Now, whether you agree with that or not, there were a bunch of people right? Feminists that were protesting outside. And you know what they did is they actually pulled the fire alarm right, to make everybody exit. I remember watching a video clip of that where there are a bunch of feminists uh, that are inside and outside the class and they're like blowing this horn inside and banging paws inside and outside the class. And then somebody finally pulls the fire alarm. And when the fire alarm is pulled, everybody outside the classroom, they were cheering Mm-hmm. Yay, we shut this down kind of thing, right? And and this just gets ridiculous. Well, hey, by the way, one other thing, and it, it is ridiculous, uh, and what it's doing is is hampering freedom of speech. Another way cancel culture works, and this is what happened with me, and this is actually what happened with the SFU event, this, this happens quite regularly, is when the event is canceled, for whatever reason they're going to give that they've canceled the event, often they'll use different reasons why they're canceling it. They will cancel it last minute, uh, and that's a strategic uh, strategy because you have no recourse, that you have no time to put forward a legal, any sort of legal recourse to try to secure your venue again because they've canceled you the night before and so, or, or a day before, right? And so now uh, you've got to quickly try to find another venue because really you've got no other, no other option. Mm-hmm. Now, the question that I think needs to be asked and that we're bringing this question to the you know to the show is what are the concerns with this kind of a culture that we're seeing? Uh, what's going to come, good or bad, from a cancel culture? A lot of the people that are getting canceled, the rise and the opposition towards these people's opinions is not so much an interaction of wanting dialogue with the person. It is just calling them out to an extreme over social media. And these people, a lot of them probably don't even know a lot of the issues that are being discussed or it's just a rise. People see something on social media, so they jump on it. Interestingly enough, this started as activism uh, on the part of people that were uh, activists, right? Earlier on, even this even goes back to the 1970s where this kind of called out started, but it was, it was again in person. But we have see this extreme with our social media and the rise of just hundreds of thousands of people seeing this overnight. 
Well, I mean, that's what a debate is, is calling somebody out. Yeah. But you're doing it in a formal way yeah. and in a respectful way in which somebody's voice and opinion is allowed to be heard and the ideas are allowed to... Um, you're allowing those ideas to be exchanged and people coming to their own conclusions. Well, what's happening there then is rather than the interlocutors determining what is right or wrong or true or false, it's really the merits of the arguments themselves that get to determine what is true or false, you know, those kinds of things, right? But when you start down the road of this kind of cancel culture, it's not the merits of the arguments. It's really people saying, unless you think like me, you have no place in society. So it actually just ends up becoming might makes right. We're just using social pressure instead of physical violence. But the essence is really no different. You're saying, unless you think like me, you have no place in society. So, so in other words, you have one side that has come to their own conclusion and they have determined that this is the correct decision. And this kind of, you know, self-righteous indignation really is this, this social justice sort of mentality that now the right thing to do is to silence the voice of this opposition because it has been deemed incorrect. Now, I saw this powerfully put recently, and I believe I, I, believe I mentioned this on the podcast. It's so difficult for me to remember what I have said and what I haven't. Old man syndrome. Uh, and that is, I was recently at a lecture in which a professor talking on environmentalism just said, listen, the time for debate is over. People just won't listen to common sense, to the facts. And so ultimately just said, now we need to force them to listen and very much was advocating for violence if necessary, because they are in the self-righteous, you know, we've got to defend the planet. This is such a big cause the planet is at stake, you know, you could, you could kind of see how, and we've talked about this before, how this moral inversion begins to take place where, you know, you start with these right ideas, but as they get pushed to an extreme, they turn on themselves and now might makes right and whatever, whatever it takes. And in the process, and this is something we're talking about here, you start to destroy the very fabric of a democratic society. And one thing that aggravates all of that is that in a lot of ways, our culture has lost the ability to think precisely and give the benefit of the doubt to the other person. So what ends up happening is, is let's say I make some really fine distinctions in what I'm talking about. It's very nuanced, but it takes actually a lot of work for the other person to understand the distinctions, fine distinctions that I'm making and kind of sifting through the nuance and all of that kind of stuff. It's much easier if that person disagrees with me to just ridicule me or shut me down. So here, here's a great example. I don't care, you know, what your political views are, but do you remember the federal election debate in Canada a little while ago uh, when Andrew Scheer was challenged on the issue of climate change. And what he said was, well, I, on the issue of climate change, I take a globalist perspective. And what he meant by that was, well, on the global stage, Canada's carbon emission is just tiny, minuscule. And it's really, we have to go after countries like China, India, and the United States, really. That was his point. 
Notice he didn't deny climate change or anything like that, but guess what? Everybody else is thinking and calling him, right? Climate change denier or something to that effect. But they didn't actually take what he said. Now, again, I don't care what your views are on climate change, but all I'm trying to demonstrate here is that when somebody is making a fine distinction and and speaking in a nuanced way, you actually have to do the hard work of trying to figure out, okay, what did he just say and what did he not say? It doesn't help to just use an easy label to shut that person down because then you're not engaging with the idea. And I think this could be helpful in a sense that you are holding people accountable to what they say and what, you know, what kind of views they have. But a problem, I think what you said before, was the listening piece and sitting down and having those discussions with those people of some, and we're so afraid. We have a lot of these safe places now at our, at our universities where you can go if you feel offended by somebody else uh, and their views. It's, it, 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 there's no interaction at all with our, our views. I mean, that's one of the challenges with this safe spaces or people, you know, having a microaggression or whatever that is. It's so subjective. So who gets to decide who's being offended? Because, I mean, the reality is both sides at some level are being offended. Uh, and then the question becomes, I mean, is that is that necessarily a bad thing, you know, that your view is being offended, that that your view is being challenged? The reality is that's what life is, is views are constantly being challenged and you will constantly interact with people that you don't agree with. And, and you could imagine with what's happening then in the university, if that expands, I mean, how, how on earth is that supposed to work in the workplace? What you've got happening in the university right now is this bubble of ridiculousness where political correctness and that, and that gets to be decided by whom, you know, is now the rule of the day. Because one of the things I'm finding fascinating about this is there are so many fractions. This is no longer a Christian, non-Christian thing. This is just a complete fracturing of culture where you've got people disagreeing with each other on a variety of different sides. So on this, in this occasion, you know, you've got the feminists on one side and you've got transgender activists on the other side that are going toe-to-toe on this issue. Now, one of the things, though, that I want to bring up that I think is an important talking point on this that people often get confused and throw around way too much, and I saw this with regards to this article, is the word dehumanization being thrown around. And this has kind of become the, the trump card now when I, I no longer feel safe or if I want to just throw gasoline on the, on the subject, you know, I could say, well, you are dehumanizing me. And I just want to take a moment to unpack that because as I have studied dehumanization, not only in my book, but in my doctoral work, it's quite clear that dehumanization is when you reduce a human being to either an object or an animal. Now, you have to understand, disagreeing with somebody is not necessarily reducing somebody to an object or an animal. So you take the transgender question that's happening. So let's just take these feminists with the transgender and the battle that they're having. This is a challenge of ideas. This is an ideological challenge. No one is saying that a transgender person in this debate we're talking about, no one is saying that a transgender person is not a human being or the feminist is not a human being. 
They're both seeing each other as human beings. They disagree with one another, and they're disagreeing with the ideologies. This is an important idea. Now, that doesn't mean that this can't slip down into the road of dehumanization, but this is where it's important to understand this, these terminologies. This could perhaps lead down to viewing somebody as an animal or an object. And what happens here is this is where the violence aspect really takes hold. And that's why this issue, I think, is so important, because violence constantly looms when discussion is no longer allowed to take place. Because now, if I'm being silenced and I can't discuss these ideas, well, I don't know what you're thinking. All I can do now is begin to think up of how it is that you view the world and how it is that you think of me. And so then I can begin to think, oh, you're dehumanizing me. You don't see me in this way or that. Or it could happen that one side is not seeing them as a human being. But how would you know if a discussion isn't taking place? And so what happens, though, is in the midst of this, you begin to have these violent tendencies that will come to the surface. And now... When that happens, depending upon how you do view that person, if you have objectified them, right, or if you have reduced them to an animal, you know, then you will act in violent ways towards that person. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, when you just shut the other person down, uh, what you're doing is not refuting what that person believes, but just repudiating it. So refuting is when you actually show why that person's views are false. Repudiation is just you refusing to accept it and just rejecting it. If you just shut that person down, you're not refuting that person's view. And so that person has no reason reason to abandon what he's been believing, right? Because it hasn't been refuted. What he believes hasn't been refuted. So the person who shut down this other person hasn't really done anything else. Like you, you didn't change anybody's mind, right? And so that idea that the first person so wanted to shut down and remove from society, it'll linger on. When you shut down a, somebody, the idea that that person believes doesn't go anywhere, right? It'll, it'll remain with that person. And so then the next step would be, well, if you want to suppress that view, you're going to have to suppress the person who holds those views because that view's going nowhere because you haven't refuted it. That's right. And so then the person becomes the object of your frustration, of your anger. That's right. Uh, I, I do want to bring up something that came up in the news recently that I think plays along these lines in a slightly different way, but I think in an important, an important way. Now, Terry, Steve, and I will be heading off to the Evangelical Philosophical Society uh, in a couple weeks here. This is a part of a bigger thing, which is called the Evangelical Theological Society, which is a part of something even bigger called SBL and AAR. So AAR, uh, what is that? American... American Academy of Religion. Yeah, American Academy of Religion. That's the big umbrella that all these are taking place under. Moves around throughout the United States, different states. Each year, thousands of scholars come from around the world to speak on various religious topics. Now, this year it was in the news. And it was in the news uh, because there was a group within this AAR SBL group that was hosting an event that was um, only allowed for a certain type of group uh, of people. In particular, it was open to anybody who was uh, non-white. 
So there's a there's a great article on this called The Godly Honky Haters, and so we'll post this in the show notes. Uh, it was on the American Conservative, if you'd like to look into this. They're the ones that, that first posted about it. Lots of other people posted about it. So this reception was on the Political Theology Network, and so how it was supposed to work is that underrepresented groups would be meeting from 7 to 8 p.m., and then after that, white people would be allowed to join this event. This is an interesting kind of cancel culture, where now you're targeting a very specific group of people and saying, you know, you are not allowed to be a part of this event. This is different, right? This isn't about ideas. This is about people. This is what we call racism. This now is much more along the lines of dehumanization, because now we are seeing and distinguishing, not between ideas, we're distinguishing between the color of your skin or your ethnicity, which would become quite difficult. Because I wonder, Terry, somebody like yourself, right? If you show up to this event, you know, would you be allowed in or not? Right. Mm-hmm. Because you look like a white Caucasian male. Right. But are you a white Caucasian male? No. <laughs> <laughs> but then, there, you know, and then there's Steve, right? Well, you know, your skin is white too, Steve. But you're, you know, especially living out there in Edmonton, is a really white right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but right, but you're Korean, mm-hmm. and so what we're what you see there is, I think, something that is quite concerning. Where now you're identifying a group of people. And those groups of people are, are no longer welcome. So you can see this distinction then with what I'm trying to get here with dehumanization. One is focused on ideas. Another one is focused on people or people groups. And so rightly, this has been challenged. But I mean, we'll have to look into it, guys, when we head off, you know, whether or not that event actually happens. I mean, it's taking a lot of heat for that, of course. Yeah, this is really ironic to me because this is precisely what the civil rights movement fought against. And now segregation is happening all over again. It's just As long as it's a politically correct, you know, segregation, because right now, if you're a white male in Canada or the United States, you are definitely feeling unwelcome. Now, some people would just push back on that and go, well, whatever group I'm a part of, I felt unwelcome or whatever. And nobody's questioning that that very well could be the case. The question is, is is that the kind of culture that we want where now it's just tit for tat? Or should we be dealing with the bigger ideas that have been undergirding with what's been taking place in an unhealthy way and seeking how can we stop that? And that's something here at Apologics Canada we take seriously every year. As you guys know, we work very hard. First of all, as a staff, we we are with Steve, you being from Korea, Terry, you being you know native, and and myself, American, right? We're a mix, but every time we have a conference, we work really hard to make sure females are represented, males are represented, and different ethnicities are being represented because we think it's important for our culture to hear from all of those different voices, and that it would be unhealthy to exclude even a group that hasn't been excluded before. Just thinking about the ETS and the EPS coming up, um, there's an exchange there of different ideas within that conference itself. And this is Christian people. Yeah. So the idea of critiquing somebody else, what does that look like within our culture? Like we have to step really quite lightly these days, but how can we have a better exchange of ideas 
with other people? I think one thing that is really helpful for me is always thinking about, okay, so let's say I'm having this conversation with somebody that I disagree with. I always ask myself, if I ever feel like I'm offended, I have to think to myself, okay, am I feeling offended by what this person said? Or am I feeling offended by how this person said it? Right. If it's the content of what this person is saying that that offends me, then I'm like, so who cares? So so I feel offended there, you know, whatever. Now, if it's the the form of the message, how this person is talking to me, that, you know, he's condescending to me, he's ridiculing me, that sort of thing. And that's why I'm feeling offended. Then I'll call that person out, say, hey, that's uncalled for. And the same goes for me too, right? So when I talk to somebody and they seem to be offended, I have to think to myself, how did I talk to this person? Was I being rude to this person, condescending? If that's the case, I have to say sorry, you know, I'll do better. But if it's the message itself that is offending the person, then it's not me, it's that person. Mm -hmm. So I always, by making that distinction, I can sort of keep a cooler head, if you will. I think that's one of the interesting things that happens at EPS and ETS, is that you have people that are coming together and they will disagree with one another, yet they respect one another and they care for each other as human beings and are allowed to disagree. Now, this shouldn't be surprising. This takes place all the time. I disagree with my wife at times. She disagrees with me all the time. You know, uh, that's supposed to be a joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for the courtesy. Guys. Uh, what were you saying? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or you got your family, right? I mean, you, you disagree with your family. Elijah, I'm sure you've disagreed with a sibling uh, here or there. Many times. <laughs> <laughs> right? That, then that's, that's what it is to be a family is how do you disagree with each other, but yet you're still a family. You still care for one another and respect one another. I think Jesus does this really interestingly with his interactions with the Samaritans. Mm. Uh, The Samaritans are a great example of dehumanization in the Bible, where you've got a people that were referred to as half-breeds, and they were treated as such. The Jews wouldn't walk through their land, wouldn't eat with them, wouldn't touch them, they wouldn't talk to them. But yet you got Jesus comes on the scene, and what does he do? He walks through the land, eats with them, talks with them, even heals them. And people are constantly going, Jesus, you know, what, what are you doing? One of the things that I think is so fascinating that he does is once, while he's being questioned by a, a Jewish lawyer on how to inherit eternal life, to which Jesus responds with the same response he gives over and over again, love, your, love you know, the Shema, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then he adds Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. One of the things that, that he's doing there that I think is so interesting is as the lawyer goes, yeah, yeah, I get it. That all sounds great. But Jesus, who's my neighbor? And the text tells us that he wants to justify himself. So it kind of tips your hat. Look, this guy is wanting to define terms so that he can get out of this. Who can I avoid loving? Exactly. Once I know who my neighbors are, I don't have to love anybody else outside of those boundaries. And then what does Jesus do? He tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. And what he does is he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. And not the Jew. And in doing so, challenges this guy's worldview profoundly by turning it upside down. And I think that there's something quite convicting about that for each one of us, is I think for each one of us, in our own ways of trying to justify ourselves, I wonder who Jesus would make the hero of the story. Who would Jesus kind of poke at for each one of us 
by seeking to show us that there are places in our own lives where we try to justify ourselves and say, yeah, 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 I'll love people, but not those people, right? And what's happening here that I think is interesting is this doesn't mean, and this is, I think, so critical for our culture to understand, it does not mean that Jesus agreed with the Samaritans. Uh, it, it's quite clear that Jesus did not agree with certain aspects of the Samaritans. The Samaritans only thought that the first five books of the Old Testament were authoritative. Jesus clearly didn't believe that. But that didn't stop him from loving those people, caring for those people, and even making them the hero of a story to show you that those people need love, forgiveness, and mercy, just like anyone else does. Guys, I I don't know your thoughts, but this to me seems to be one of the, the major crux points in our culture today is how do you disagree with somebody and love them at the same time? And it seems as though it just spills over from the brokenness that we see in our families, the brokenness we see in our friendships. And you see that brokenness just spilling out in culture at large, where we've got such a fragmented society that doesn't understand how you can disagree and yet love at the same time. So we're going to leave it there for now. Thank you for joining us again, again, listeners. I want to just remind you of a few things. We have the Human Project Kids podcast. We have bigger discussions here on this podcast, but if you want something to discuss with your kids at home, you can listen to that podcast. We have two books out uh, with regards to the Human Project for Kids, and the latest one is What Am I Worth? And that just was released two weeks ago or so, right? Mm -hmm. So that's uh, some other resources for uh, parents. And uh, yeah, if you are interested in giving us a rating or a review on iTunes, that would be fantastic. We'd love to hear from you there and just uh, let us know how we're doing. Elijah, thanks a lot for being on with us today and uh, getting a taste of what we do here. Thanks for coming and spending a day with us. Thanks again for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about. Mm